Erev Tov, good evening. We are in the Keter Shem Tov, volume 3. And we are on the page. Someone's going to help me out with my Roman numerals. It says at the bottom of the page, XIX. In your... Page 17 of the PDF. 17 of the PDF. Okay, so 17 of the PDF. Thank you. So we mentioned last week that there are, according to Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, 51 differences between Sephardim and Ashkenazim in day-to-day practice. Now this list is not exhaustive, so there are definitely more than 51. And this list is also not a big deal list. What I mean to say is not all of these things are major hot points of contention. They're, they're simply differences that he's highlighting to counteract this claim that Sephardim and Ashkenazim, pretty much everything they do is the same. When really, that's not accurate, not pretty much everything we do is the same. And Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is talking about that using these examples. So the next example that we're up to is at the top of page 19, we said, Yud Aleph. It says Yud Aleph, 11 at the top of the page. Yud Aleph. Sefaradim mevarchin shechianu al hamila. Sefaradim, by a brit milah, they recite Shekhyanu. Ashkenazim and Mevachin. And Ashkenazim do not recite a Shekhyanu on the Brit Milam. Now just before we say anything, last week, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin had told us that there's a major difference in the Simcha, the joy that you find between Chanukah and Purim, between the Sephardim and Ashkenazim. I'll tell you that in my experience, in my time around the Sephardic and Ashkenazi community, I think that when it comes to Brit Milah, you could say almost the same thing. Uh, my experience, it could be that where you are, it's very different. My experience has been that by Sephardim, a Brit Milah is this festive occasion, everyone's happy singing. Even the ceremony of the Brit Milah involves a lot of singing, and uh, it depends, you know, which crowd you come from, obviously, but I'm thinking of... Uh, We're hearing all kinds of songs, uh, singing... And I, I, in the many, many times in my life that I've been to a Brit Milah in an Ashkenazi synagogue, a little bit, very fast, some mumbling, uh, bracha, and then baby crying, and that was the end of the Brit Milah. And this difference, though, may or may not be connected to that. And that is that Sephardim recite a Shekhyanu at the Brit Milah, whereas Ashkenazim do not. When I say Shekhyanu by the Brit Milah, what are they reciting a Shekhyanu over? What's the purpose of reciting a Shekhyanu here? Why would one recite a Shekhyanu by Brit Milan? Mitzvah? Very good. Like any mitzvah that you're doing for the first time in a long time. Now there is a machlokat you should know whether you recite Shekhyanu only the first boy that you have a Brit Milah for or on every boy. What I've seen the Svaradim do is on every Brit Milah. Just like when you do any other mitzvah for the first time in a long time, you recite a blessing of Shekhyanu. So tell me the reason why you would not recite a Shekhyanu on a Brit Milah. It's not, uh, it is a continuous mitzvah. But, but the mitzvah is happening now, so there's a reason now to make a Shekhyanu. The truth is, if you look at the footnote here, 54. Ayen Keter Shem Tov. Look in Keter Shem Tov. 
in Tafkuf Samergimen. Masher Khafti Hadibur Bazel. We said, I spoke excessively about this concept of Shekhyanu by Brin Mila and not. Vashkenazim Birushanaim Nohagim Atal Varech Shekhyanu Kipsak Rambam Besefer Hayad. And the Ashkenazim in Jerusalem. Whenever we say the Ashkenazim in Jerusalem, it really means Ashkenazim in Israel. The Ashkenazim in Israel, they today recite the Shekhyanu by the Brit Milah, like the Rambam wrote in the Sefer Hayat. By the way, the Bishop of Gagin doesn't give you uh, the source for where the Rambam says that. The Rambam mentions Shekhyanu by Brit Milah in two different places. In the laws of Berachot, in chapter 11, Halakha 9, and the laws of Brit Milah, Chapter 3, Halakha 3. So two different places you can look up the Rambam who discusses whether or not you should say Shekhyanu by Ibrit Milah. Uchuvot Rambam, the Rambam in his letters also, Siman Yud Aleph, letter 11. od b'shulchan aruch v'sham chayim. Look in Shulchan Aruch, in chapter 265 of Yoredeah, in the seventh Halakha, Maran there, Maran brings both opinions that you, some say you don't recite Shekhyanu, Maran in Yoredeah says that because the Rambam ruled that one should recite a Shekhyanu by the Brit Milah, that is the prevalent custom in Eretz Israel and in all places where the rulings of the Rambam were accepted. I wanted to answer my first question, and that was why would Ashkenazim not recite Shekhyanu by the Brit Milah? And the truth is that there doesn't seem to be an answer. What do I mean there doesn't seem to be an answer? There are many answers, but not one answer. So there are answers that vary from, we don't find it mentioned in the Talmud, the Rambam is the first one to create a blessing of Shekhyanu in this place. Now those who view the Rambam as an absolute restatement of the oral law with no interference whatsoever in the Rambam's end, they obviously wouldn't like that answer so much. What else? There is an answer that sits with me well. I believe the Gaon of Vilna quotes it in his commentary on Shulchan Aruch. And the Gaon of Vilna, I think it's the Gaon of Vilna, but don't hold me to that. He says that there's a tzar that happens here. There's a certain type of pain that happens. You're saying Shekhyanu. Thank you, Hashem, for letting me live to this day. Shekhyanu, Vikimanu, Vikimanu. Meanwhile, there's a baby screaming his head off. He's hurt. How could you recite a Shekhyanu when a baby is being hurt? This answer, I want you to hold on to it for just a moment. Because that leads us to the next question. And that is, if the reason why Ashkenazim do not recite Shekhyanu on the Brit Milah is because the baby is in pain. Does the Brit Milah hurt any less in Eretz Yisrael than it does outside of Eretz Yisrael? Would there be some reason why a baby in Eretz Yisrael, you could say Shekhyanu about his Brit Milah when he's screaming his head off, but in New York or London or anywhere else, don't, there you can't recite Shekhyanu, here it hurts the baby. This answer doesn't make much sense. But I did see something in the writings of Rav Tzvi Hurakuk, the son of of Abraham Yitzchak Kuk. And he says that there's something about Eretz Yisrael. This is surely not a halachic category. So right now this is in the realm of uh, a thought. There's something about Eretz Yisrael that when Jewish people endure pain, it doesn't hurt as much as everywhere else. There's something about knowing that the pain that I'm enduring for my land, for my home, for my country, for my people, it hurts, of course it hurts. But I can recite a Shekhyanu because I'm so lucky that for the first time in so many years, I can experience pain on behalf of the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael. He directly connects this to the celebration of Yom HaTzmaut. And he says that Yom HaTzmaut, it is a foolish thing to ignore all of the complaints that, for example, 
the Haredi community has about Yom Hatzmaut and the state of Israel and the secularism and the maybe even some forms of rabbin anti-Semitism that you find in Israel you can't find elsewhere. The problems that exist in government and in functionality or dysfunction of the government. All of these things are real problems. Says there's something interesting though. In Eretz Yisrael we recite Shechianu even when it hurts. Meaning, he invokes the Gemara, Talmud Yerushalmi. And the Talmud Yerushalmi, our rabbis tell us, Gadol Kiddush Hashem Yoter Michilul Hashem. A sanctification of God's name is greater than a desecration of God's name. Do you need the Talmud to teach you that sanctifying God's name is, is better than desecrating God's name? Would you need Chachamim of the Talmud to teach us that? No, of course not. So Elamas says of Tzvi Hudakuk that what the Gemara Talmud Yerushalmi, specifically the Jerusalem Talmud, is teaching us is in Eretz Yisrael, when you have a Kiddush Hashem and a Chilul Hashem happening simultaneously, the Kiddush Hashem always overpowers the Chilul Hashem. There are some, you can see the good and you can see the bad, but in Eretz Yisrael, as opposed to the rest of the world, we always choose to focus on the positive, and this is one of the theological ideas that is behind Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk's understanding of why despite the problems of Eretz Yisrael, we always focus on the positive and we celebrate the success, and not ignore, but while we're celebrating, we don't focus too much on that which is negative in the land of Israel. So this discussion here between Tzavardim and Ashkenazim, Though it may seem small in terms of do we recite a Shekhyanu, do we not recite a Shekhyanu, what it does show is there's, there's what to be read into these opinions and there are ideas that are taken, borrowed from Halakha and applied elsewhere. And I wanted to share this thought about Yom Ha'atzmaut that comes from this Halakha. Now practically, practically, that's on, on this, back to the realm of Halakha, away from the realm of, of Emunot and Deot. What is the real difference between Ashkenazim in Eretz Israel and Ashkenazim outside of Eretz Israel? That in Eretz Yisrael, there are so many things that are done similar to Sephardim. And outside of Eretz Yisrael, there are so, the, the differences are that much more. Anyone have any understanding of the history or the halachic evolution of these customs inside of Israel versus outside of Israel? I'll give you a few examples. Berkat Kohanim. Ashkenazim in Israel say Berkat Kohanim every day, but outside of Israel they don't. Uh, what else? En Kelohenu, all the Ketoret. Outside of Eretz Yisrael, the Ashkenazim don't say it, Hasidim aside. And inside of Eretz Yisrael, they do. There are certain things like this. Uh, putting on tefillin, achol hamoed. Don't jump on me. I know those of you who have a struggle with this halakha in general. I'm just... Outside of Eretz Yisrael, you're more likely to find Ashkenazim who wear tefillin. They put on tefillin, achol hamoed. In Eretz Yisrael, it's almost impossible. Not impossible, but almost impossible. What's the difference here between Ashkenazim and Israel? If you open up an Ashkenazi sidur, uh, I'm thinking of Sidur Vilna. Uh, they'll be, if you live in Israel, you say this. And if you live outside of Israel, you say that. Baruchu at the end of the tefillah. Ashkenazim say the Baruchu at the end of the tefillah, like Zavaradim, only in Israel, in Israel. But outside of Israel, they don't say it. Why? Someone help me out here. Why? Um, if I can maybe offer some sort of explanation. Please. Um, I think it's because um, after the war, majority of Ashkenazim who came to Israel were Zionists and they were non-religious. And people who came from Sephardic countries were religious. So the, the renewal of religious life came through Sephardim. So anybody who wanted to join the religious life would join in a Sephardi way to learn the religious way of life. Um, I know that certainly that a lot of Ashkenazim are like that in France because um, they also learn from Sephardim. So I think it's because they actually learn from Sephardim how to be religious 
um, because they lost it during the war and there was no one else to learn it from. Okay, so Miriam, I have to say that in terms of theories, this one is fantastic and it is likely true in many places, in many places. In Israel, though, I'm just going to put two things that will, will put your challenge your assertion, perhaps. The first, I'm talking about the, even in the most anti-Zionist circles in Israel, the Haredi circles that were religious the whole way through, they do all of these things also. So they definitely didn't learn from Sifanadim. And two, I'm talking about uh, 150 years ago, this is also the case in Israel. So that being said, I'm not, what you're saying may be true. By the way, you know, my, my, uh, I have a friend who's a rabbi in the Israeli army. Comes time for Sifanadim. Everybody's doing Sephardic Sifanadim in the Israeli army. I'm sure you can find a minyan here or there during Ashkenazi Sifanadim. Why? It just, who's doing Silichot in the army? The Sephardic soldiers, even the non-religious ones, are doing Silichot. And so because of that, that's what gives the flavor of Silichot to the rest of the army, and that's the, that's the way that goes. You go to the Kotel in Elul, it's almost impossible in the Kotel during Elul to find an Ashkenazi minyan for Silichot. And it's challenging for those people who want an Ashkenazi minyan, but you have to contend with like, Nobody wants to sign up for the other one when this one is going on over here. And that's, that's pretty much, those things have happened. You're right. So I'm not taking away that such things have been the case in history. In this particular case though, uh, there is much connection to these minhagim and the spread of Kabbalah throughout the Sephardic world. And then the spread of Kabbalah takes over the Ashkenazi world, particularly in Israel. But outside of Israel, not so much. So outside of Israel, the Ashkenazim resisted very much the spread of Kabbalah, pretty much until the Hasidim streamlined that back into Ashkenazi custom. But in terms of the Ashkenazi community of Israel, they were very influenced by the Kabbalah. Also, let's be fair, that much of the rabbinic establishment of Israel for the last many centuries has been predominantly Sephardic, and because of that, even the Ashkenazi communities who came in mass were influenced in some way by the Sephardim, but less because they were trying to be Sephardim, and more because they were trying to emulate these Kabbalistic uh, customs or values. The source, that, if you want to look this up, uh, the Shilah, who wrote the Shilah? Shnei Duchot Abrit. Famous Ashkenazi Kabbalist. In his commentary on Chunin, tractate Chunin, on page Kuf Yud Bet, 112, over there he writes that Anu Israel, we, the Jews of Israel, we are, uh, his wording, maybe Nismachin or Nigrarin, we are dragged or we are, are leaning heavily upon the Kabbalah of the Zohar. And because of this, he lists many, many things where Ashkenazim, when they came to Israel, defaulted over to Sephardic traditions, which at the time were very compatible with the teachings of the Zohar that were spread in Israel at the time. And this is really one of the main reasons why in Israel, it's not that the baby hurts less, but just because in Israel, the Ashkenazi Jews accepted many more customs that were similar, were in common with the Sephardim, because both of them were involved in Kabbalah at the time. Yes, that's difference 11. Number 12. Sephardim only recite one blessing over the tefillin. Ashkenazim mevarachin shtayim. And Ashkenazim recite two blessings. It's very important when we say here Ashkenazim and Sephardim that we don't include Hasidim in the category of Ashkenazim because very often Hasidim, like the Ashkenazim of Israel, do things a little differently than the rest of the Ashkenazi establishment. Uh, tell me about tefillin. What's going on here with the tefillin? Why one bracha, two brachot, which bracha? What's, what's being said here? Someone walk me through this. 
Okay, the arm and the head, right? So you have the tefillin shaliyad, tefillin shalosh. Betsy, continue. No, no, stop. No, you don't? Okay. So there's two berachot. To place my hand tefillin. There's also a blessing of tefillin on the head. Al mitzvat tefillin. On the mitzvah of putting on tefillin. By Sephardim, they only recite the hand berachah, laniach tefillin. And then they remain silent between the hand and the head. Ashkenazim, most. So put Hasidim aside, some of them. It could be that in Chabad, for example, I recall that they might not say the two blessings. I, but I have to. So Ashkenazim recite, and then on the head they say, Al Mitzvah Tefillin. They recite two blessings on the Tefillin. The difference between these two, it seems like if you look in the Talmud, you will see in a number of places, where Chachamim mention over and over all the different blessings you say in the morning, blessing on the hand tefillin and blessing on the head tefillin. So it seems like, according to the Talmud, there are two different blessings on the hand or the head. You look in the Rambam, though, in the Shulchan Aruch, Sefaradim only recite a blessing on the hand tefillin and not on the head tefillin. Ashkenazim, though, recite a blessing on the hand and the head, but the Ramah says that after they recite the blessing on the head, they should say a very special sentence. What sentence do Ashkenazim say once they put the tefillin on their head? Baruch Shem Kevod After they put on their head tefillin. I'll explain in a moment. The teaching that there are two blessings for the tefillin in our tradition is that one recites a blessing. Tefillin on the hand and the head are one mitzvah that are connected to each other. Because of that, you recite a blessing on the hand, and that covers your head tefillin as well. The only time you'd recite a blessing separately for the two of them is if you interrupted, you spoke, you did something you shouldn't do between your hand tefillin and your head tefillin, in which case that would warrant an extra blessing on the head tefillin because you already made a hefsek, an interruption between your hand tefillin and your head tefillin. Ashkenazim, who have a custom to recite a blessing on their head tefillin, they then say, Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuton Anaved. Help me out, those of you who uh, were brainwashed in Jewish day school to say this pasuk, whenever, whenever, what happens? When do you say Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuton When you accidentally say HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name, you say a bracha you shouldn't have said, you cancel it out. Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuton Anaved. So if Ashkenazim are convinced that the blessing they recite on the head tefillin is correct, why are they immediately canceling out the blessing by saying, Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuton Anaved? Okay, if I recall, the Mishnah Berua at the bottom of the page says, no, don't understand us incorrectly. We're not saying Baruch Shem Kivod Malchudon Ve'ed because we think the Sefaradim are right. We're saying Baruch Shem Kivod Malchudon Ve'ed out of respect to those poskim who say that you shouldn't say this blessing. Okay, well, however you want to do it. I'll tell you there's no Berachah in my life that I recite consistently every single day and right afterwards I say Baruch Shem Kivod Malchudon Ve'ed. If there was such a Berachah, I would simply stop reciting such a Berachah. If you look here in footnote 55 at the bottom of the page, Look at the Shulchan Aruch, chapter 25 in Halachahei. They began reciting one blessing like the Sephardim in Yerushalayim. And it's possible that it was his influence that caused them to do that. And here he mentions to you, Chulin. And I did write down the language here. 
the language was, the Shnah there says, Anachnu Yushvei Eretz Yisrael, Nimshachim Achar Kabbalat Azor HaKadosh. We, the Ashkenazim in Eretz Yisrael, we are, are um, Nimshachim, we are attracted, we are drawn to the teachings of the Zohar HaKadosh. Says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, and I could not find this. I found the book, I was, I, you know, I don't own this book in, in my own, so I, I was using a PDF of it, and it was very hard font for me to read everything, but he writes here, Im en zichroni kozev, if my memory does not fail me, says Rabbi Shantov Gagin, Shalamadati Besefer Lekata Kemach, Lemhoram Chagiz. That in the book Lekata Kemach of Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, I've mentioned him to you many times. He writes it here, Chagiz, but I'm pretty sure that we say Chagiz. Shekatav, and he wrote, Rabbi Moshe Chagiz, who was a famous Sephardic rabbi in Jerusalem, his father, Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz, was the founder of one of the most successful and famous Sephardic yeshivot in the world. Halavai, uh, that we would have a yeshiva like his yeshiva uh, there in Yerushalayim. Rabbi Moshe Chagiz said, I wish that I was born into an Ashkenazi family so that I would be able to recite two blessings, one on the hand tefillin and one on the head tefillin. And that's how important he felt it was to recite that. Nonetheless, the custom across the world is Sephardim recite only one blessing on the tefillin and Ashkenazim recite two blessings on the tefillin. Yud Gimel, at the top of the page. Sephardim, en onin amen achal ga'al Yisrael. Ashkenazin, onin. <coughs> Sephardim do not recite amen after the blessing, Baruch Atah Hashem ga'al Yisrael. When do we recite that blessing? Before the Amidah. Before the Amidah of Shacharit, in the morning. Baruch Atah Hashem ga'al Yisrael. Immediately afterwards, you're supposed to start the Amidah. Our rabbis tell us, Gimel techefot hen. In the Talmud, the rabbis say, there are three things that have to happen one after the next. Yeah? What are, what are they? Techef. Legeulah tefillah. Right after you say the blessing of redemption, Gal Yisrael, you must immediately say the tefillah. Techef. Semicha shechita. Right after you do semicha, what is semicha? You lean, very good. You lean your hands on it. You lean your hands on the animal. You do shechida, and then the last thing, techef, then tilat yadaim beracha, or maybe techef then tilat beracha. I have to remember the exact word there. And immediately after you wash your hands, you have to recite a blessing. Don't read this gemara like a Jew living in the year 2021. So nobody in the Jewish community of original Jews ever washed their hands and recited a blessing after they washed their hands. And the only person who would say a blessing after they washed their hands is the same type of person who would wear their pants on their head and their shirt on their legs and their shoes on their hands. It's an upside down way to do anything. You recite a blessing and then you do a mitzvah. You say and then you wash your hands. You say uh, you, you then light the candles of Shabbat. You say and then you take the love. You say, get the point, all of the mitzvot, you say the blessing, and then you do the mitzvah. You never have, you never have a situation where you say, uh, you do a mitzvah, and then you recite the blessing afterwards. There's one exception. There's one exception to a mitzvah, where you first do the mitzvah, and then you recite a blessing afterwards. Tell me which mitzvah that is. When someone converts. Very good. Yeah, very good. When someone converts, tell me. So they can't say the, the blessing because they're not Jewish. So they have to actually um, do the tevila first and then they say the blessing. 
Fantastic. So when, when a ger tzedek goes to the mikveh, they're not yet Jewish to say, So first they immerse, and then they recite the blessing. But that's the only place, because there literally is no other option. There's nothing else that can be done aside from that situation. So when it's... Someone would say, before eating bread, so you actually say, and then you wash hands? Of course. No, no, that's, look, look in the Rambam, look in the Rambam, the laws of Berachot, he says that. Look in the Shulchan Aruch, also laws of Tadidayim, that's what he says. Uh, that's what all of the Chachamim did until, I don't want to tell you until, I have a shiur about this. If you want, I can send the shiur later to the group about where, how exactly this minhag happened the way that it happened. Now, so long as your hands are clean, what does it mean clean? Is it not considered that because you're not drying them until... Like it's not completed, the whole action. That's how I've been towards it. Correct. The, the Rama is the one who says that because your hands are still wet and drying your hands is part of the mitzvah of washing your hands, that you can still say the blessing until your hands are dried. Though, see the Rama, it's a problem over there. Why do you have to dry your hands before you eat the bread? Why? Because they need to be dry to not pass. Tuma, very good. No, you're right. Yeah, very, don't, don't. Tuma. The, the, tuma, the tuma is on your hands because you wash with a little bit of water. Says the, the, the halakha says that if you wash your hands the more than a revi'it, so what is a revi'it? I don't know, see this much water? If, it's up to here. If you wash your hands with more than that much water, you don't have to dry your hands afterwards. Because the tuma already washed, the, there's enough clean water that went on your hands, there's no more dirty water left. If that's the case, then everybody who uses one of those mega-sized washing cups that I see in every bit of Knesset in the world, uh, I use a little, but everyone else uses a big Nitinat Daim cup, and they do three times on each hand, or two times on each hand. They have so much water over there, it almost counts for a mikveh. They for sure don't have to dry their hands after they wash their hands there. Even according to the Ramah, that wouldn't be good. Now the Ramah, let's be honest, the Ramah says that even if you dry your hands, you can still recite the blessing. Um, the Ramah is pretty consistent across the Shulchan Aruch, there's a place in laws of Shechita Ramah says that if you slaughtered the animal and you're walking home you forgot you forgot to say the blessing of Shechita now you say the blessing of the Shechita uh, the rule in the Talmud that says that every blessing you must recite before you do the mitzvah it's mentioned five times in the Talmud uh, the Ramah seems to have either a different understanding of it I'm saying that respectfully or he just doesn't accept it at all that that's a rule but I can't work within that framework because I have to accept that the rule of the Talmud is that every mitzvah you have to say before you recite the... And you should know the Mishnah Bua, in his commentary, Bi'u Halakha, he writes there that anybody who wants to follow Maran, Shulchan Aruch, and say the blessing first, that's the correct minhag. And you shouldn't protest a person who wants to say the blessing and then wash their hands. Meaning, even Mishnah Boaz says that's the correct way to do it. Whatever we're justifying is just that. It's a justification, but it's not actually the law. So back to my Giulala Tfilah. Oh, yeah, I didn't tell you. So what is the Nitilah and the Bracha that you can't talk after you wash your hands? Which blessing? Not bread. Don't tell me about bread. Rashi, Tosafot, everybody there on the page tells you, Nitilat Edaim is my Macharonim. Very good. And Beracha is Berkat Amazon. You're not allowed to talk after you wash your hands, my Macharonim, until you say Berkat Amazon. And if you do, you have to wash again. Buy Nitilat Edaim for bread. Between washing your hands for bread and eating the bread, 
Okay, I mean, that's not my shul today. That's for a different shul. But definitely by my Machonim, I believe I saw once Rabbi Dweck, which should live and be well. I think I saw him once put a post up about talking between between the Tilat Yedaim and Hamotzi. Yeah, he's got, he's got, he's got, um, he's got a screenshot of, um, of a Sefer talking about it. Very good. I think it's, 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 it's very good. I think it's from the sons of everybody else that say that's what he did also. Correct? I think, I think that's what Mord is referring to. That's exactly right. Okay. So, Ga'al Yisrael. Right after you say, Baruch HaDashem, Ga'al Yisrael, you immediately have to say your Hamidah. If you look here in 56, the reason why Sephardim don't say Amen to that blessing of Gaal Yisrael is because of a Hefsek. Maran writes, Shulchan Aruch, you're not allowed to say Amen because you cannot interrupt between Baruch HaTashem Gaal Yisrael and the beginning of your Amidah. Ashkenazim, lo sevira lehache. The Ashkenazim, that's not their opinion. They don't consider this Amen to be a Hefsek. This Amen is part of the blessing that has just been said right now. And again, once again, you find that the Shna, he did not say Amen like the Sefaradim. So you find many things the Shna did that were following the Sefaradim. I just taught a Teshuvah here in my Berakneset two weeks ago. Thank you, Mord, for the link. He put a link in the chat box. Um, I taught a shiur here two weeks ago in the Beit Knesset on Shabbat from the writings of Rabbi Tzchak Abadi. Rabbi Tzchak Abadi is a, a very prestigious poset here in the United States. Unfortunately, like many of the great poskim, he doesn't get the credit he deserves for the Torah that he's brought to the world. One of, I'm not a student of his. I, I, don't, I haven't even had the zechut to meet him personally. But one of the most brilliant halachic minds that I've had the ability to engage in, in his writings and to see the way he thinks and the way he understands. Sechle Yashar, like a real straightforward, halachic mind. Rabbi Abadi struggles with this very much. Because the custom in the world today is, by the Sefaradim, how do we do it? Baruch HaDashem, Gal Yisrael, and then everyone starts, Adonai Sefaradai Tiftach, Ufi Agit Yeladecha, and we start the Amidah. Yes. By the Ashkenazi world, most of the Ashkenazi world, not all, there are some Ashkenazim who do things correct, but most of the Ashkenazi world, how do they start the Amidah? They say, Baruch HaDashem, what do they do next? They go, well, Hashem, God. Look at that. It goes. Everyone goes quiet. They don't say the end of the bracha. They fumble the end of the bracha. Why? They claim, they claim, they call them in They claim that this is intended to avoid a question. If we don't say the bracha out loud, so then we don't have to enter this safek, whether we say amen or we don't say amen. The problem is the whole purpose you have a chazan. For what reason do you have a shaliyah tibur? What's the job of the Shadiyah Tzibu? To be able to let others participate that don't know the prayers or the book or mm-hmm. oh, I don't know. Very good, yeah. yeah. The whole purpose of the Shadiyah is he's praying for the people who are not able to follow, read Hebrew properly or that he's the one saying the brachot for them. What does it help us if the Shadiyah Tzibu is failing his job? In general, you should know, there are Batei Knesset where the Shadiyah Tzibu says nothing out loud. It may be the first pasuk, and then mumble, 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 and then the last pasuk. First pasuk, mumble, mumble. What kind of shaliyah tibur is that? The job of a shaliyah tibur is to say the whole tefillah out loud. By the way, I'm going to add here. Aside from just saying the tefillah for those who don't know how to read Hebrew, the shaliyah tibur, I don't like what I see today, even in the Sephardic community, where every, every Joe Shmo, 
goes up there to be a shaliach tibor. It could be that in a more organized community, maybe like the Spanish Portuguese, I would assume that they have chazanim, set chazanim, that that's their job to lead the tefillah, I'm assuming. In many Sephardic countries, only the Talmidei Chachamim led the tefillah. Only them. We don't hire fancy chazanim. Today you see a chazan, they come for the high holidays, they bur and am ha'aretz, and ignoramus, they don't know anything, but they have a beautiful voice, so they become the chazanim. It's a dangerous thing to have such a situation. The job of a chazan, to read, also the one who reads the Torah, the Koran, the Torah, to read every word loud and clear, and you listen to the tefillah every day, you hear the parasha I read every week, and you will learn how to recite every word properly. I'm in a Facebook group of Yemenite Jews. Some, someone added me to this group. And I'm, I'm so impressed. Every day somebody writes something. This pasuk, what? And then every, how do you pronounce it? Is it, is it with a, 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 a chaf that's a, a chaf or is it a kaf? What is it? And everyone says, I remember my grandfather. I remember my rabbi. I remember my father. That's how it's supposed to be. The people are supposed to know how to read things because they, the only time it was ever read to them was by a qualified individual who read it out loud properly. And today, we're so far away from that. The people who go up there, I don't know who appointed them to be a shaliyah What, because someone died in their family, now we have to suffer for the rest of the year to hear them mumble the tefillah that we don't, they don't know what they're saying and we don't know what they're saying? Mechila. The job of a shaliyah is to represent the community and I'm adding a secondary job, to teach the community how to pray at the right pace, how to recite the words properly. These are important things. So Rabbi Yitzchak Abadi says he doesn't understand this custom of going silent at the end of the bracha. Either say Amen or don't say Amen. One case you're following the Shukhar Aruch, the other case you're following the Ramah. Either which way you do, you're following one of these poskim. Leave it alone. The next halakha, Yudalit. I really didn't want to touch this one with a 10-foot pole. I have a video about it separately in a different place. But if I'm already talking about it, let's just talk about it. Yudalit. Sefaradim. En manichim tefilin bechol hamoed. The Sephardim do not put on tefillin during Chol HaMoed. Ashkenazim, Manichin. And Ashkenazim, they do put on tefillin during Chol HaMoed. Okay, somebody walk me through this oversimplified statement. When he says Sephardim, who's he referring to? Portuguese, Mizrahi, all the way to India Jews. Okay, so he's referring to pretty much all the Sephardim. Let me give you this answer. Those who accepted the rulings of Marana Shulchan Aruch. Okay? In the realm, the generation before Marana Shulchan Aruch, it is very cryptic for us to understand whether or not Jews put on tefillin during Chol Hamoid. It seems like from the writings of the Bet Yosef, Maran writes that the Jews in Sepharad used to wear tefillin during Chol Hamoid, and then with the immersion of the Zohar, there was a passage in the Zohar that mentions the danger of wearing tefillin during Chol Hamoid, and because of that, Sepharadim stopped putting on tefillin in Chol Hamoid. I really, this is not, for some people, this is their whole life. Their whole life is to fight about whether you put on tefillin in Chol Hamoid or not. My, my life is really not revolving around this one topic of Judaism. Uh, but this, and I'll walk you through as simply as I can. It would be correct to say that there definitely were communities, especially of Sevaradim, who wore Tefillin before Maran Shulchan Aruch on Chol Hamoed. And it's very difficult to understand how a passage from the Zohar could get us to abandon a halakha that requires us to wear Tefillin every day. Now, even in the die-hard communities of the Rambam in Yemen, yes, 
Harav Kapach writes in his commentary in the Rambam, he says that when he was in Yemen, everybody, nobody wore tefillin achol hamoed. And he said he doesn't know if this was the original Yemenite practice, or if this was the Yemenite practice because of the influence of Kabbalah in Yemen that even influenced the Maimonidean uh, Rambam communities of Yemen. And so this, I can't answer because I don't know, I wasn't there, I, I didn't exist there before. Even the Barbenel, the Barbenel, he discusses all about the Tiflin Cholomoyed, no Tiflin Cholomoyed, but he doesn't tell us what the custom in Zivarad was. He just tells us what exactly was happening, but not what they did before. In 1932, in 1932, and I spoke about this in one of my shiurim also. Harav Kapach, Jr., so Harav Yosef Kapach, not Jr., his askara was yesterday. Yes? Yesterday is the 18th of Tammuz. Yesterday was the, the askara, the yard side of Harav Kapach. Alam Shalom. Harav uh, Kapach's grandfather, Mori Hayashish, or Bichye Kapach, was the head rabbi of this group of Jews who referred to themselves as the Dorda, or in the slang, Dardim. It's a, it's a derogatory slang for them in Yemenite. Dorda, the generation of knowledge, those who rejected the teachings of the Kabbalah. Essentially, that's what made them uh, the Dorda. And I have a shiur, my first Rambam class in my Mishneh Torah playlist is all about this in a historical context. What exactly was happening? Who are the players? What's the war? What's going on? I'm not talking about it right now. In 1932, Harav Yosef Kapach, the grandson, so Rabbi Yosef is the son of Rabbi David, Rabbi David is the son of Rabbi Yichia. Rabbi Yosef Kapach takes over for his grandfather as the rabbi of this community. He was 14 and a half years old. At the age of 14 and a half, he takes over the leadership of this, he is the rabbi of the yeshiva, he's the rabbi of the Bera Knesset, he presumably is a dayan already at this point as well. And Rabbi Yosef Kapach has a situation where two of the members of the community, this breakaway Yemenite community, show up on Chol HaMoed wearing tefillin to the tefillah. Rabbi Yosef Kapach finishes the tefillah and afterwards he goes over to them and he tells them, in my grandfather's life, nobody dared come here on Chol HaMoed wearing tefillin. Please don't do it again. And this became a schism in the, even in the family that followed Harav Kapach, the community that followed Harav Kapach, these two Jews didn't come back again because they were livid that Rabbi Yosef Kapach did not allow them to come with Tefillin Jerchol HaMoed, but he claimed that that's what, his, that's what he did, that's what his grandfather did. There is another Rabbi Aharon Kapach. I don't know exactly how he's related to the family. He claims that possibly Rabbi Yechiel Kapach donned Tefillin in private, but in public, out of the respect to the custom, he didn't. I find such claims hard to believe, but I wasn't there, so I can't tell you either way. In any case, it seems like the division is between Sefaradim, most Sefaradim today, post-Girush Sefaradim. Call us post-Shuchan Aruch Sefaradim. Do not wear Tefillin Achon HaMoed. And the Ashkenazim, many of them, aside from those in Eretz Yisrael, they do wear Tefillin on Chon HaMoed. I know that Chacham Faur, once said along the lines of as much as he respects Maran, he cannot respect Maran to the place where he will uproot a biblical commandment to put on Tefillin. I don't know if he said it or not. That's what I heard in his name. Uh, I would also then say the other way around, which is I don't believe that Maran would uproot a halakha from the Torah just because of, of the Zohar said something and therefore was uprooted. Min Hastam, I accept that before the Shulchan Aruch, it must be that Tefillin was not worn at Chol HaMoed either, but I understand that this is a point of contention. Tedvav, the next one, Tedvav. 
ספרדים אין אומרים י"ח פסוקים קודם י"ח שבערבית כמנהג אשכנז. The ספרדים do not say the 18 פסוקים before the עמידה בערבית, but אשכנזים do. What, is, what are they talking about these 18 פסוקים? Anyone here ever pray with אשכנזים? On a nighttime ערבית? What do they do? What do they say? By the way, if you're Moroccan, some Moroccan Jews do this as well. Yeah, yeah, but right before the Amidah, what do they say? Yeah, yeah, you know, I know you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, I'm not saying it in a long, long time. That's right. So, so there's a whole section of Pesukim. Baruch Adonai Lama Ve'amen. Yiru Einenu Yismach Libenu. And they recite a blessing at the end. Baruch Hashem. Hamelech Bichvodo Alchay Vakayam Tabit Nochadenu Leolam Ve'ed Ve'alkol Ma'asav. They say Amen. They say Kaddish. It's a collection of 18 Pesukim that are recited before the Amidah. These Pesukim, at least in my memory, are not found anywhere in the Talmud. We don't find them in the Talmud. We first find them in the writings of the Geonim. Let's look at the footnote here in 58. These 18 Pesukim that Ashkenazim recite, they became enacted in the days of the Geonim. They were there to replace the Amidah, the 18 blessings of the Amidah, because of a decree. And he gives you a source in the writings of the Geonim. What's this Gezerah? Anyone familiar with the history of why are Jews in the times of the Geonim reciting 18 blessings instead of saying the Amidah? I wonder if this is doing Somebody has got to read the footnotes in an Ashkenazi Sidur once in their life. Come on. I'll read two from our Sido here. It's a Moroccan Sido that includes this custom. The custom was to recite this collection of verses as a replacement for the Arvit Amida, since both of these prayers contain the name of Hashem 18 times, corresponding to the 18 blessings of the Amida. The Rosh contends that the theme of each verse and the collection of verses relate to each of the Amida blessings respectively. So this is like a substitution for the Amida. According to this tradition, the replacement for the Amidah was followed by Yiru, Enenu, and Kaddish. This custom developed in the times of the Geonim, that's exactly what Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is telling us, when synagogues were situated in fields outside the boundaries of towns and villages. So the Batei Knesset were outside of the main city. They were in the fields where people were working. Tosafot in Berachot explains that due to the heightened dangers at night, you can read that literally as bandits, you can understand that uh, evil spirits, however you want to read Tosafot, whatever reason, people are afraid of the night. These shorter prayers were established to accelerate the service, enabling worshippers to reach the safety of city walls before dark. There's a Teshuvah by Rabbi Shalom Masas in Shemesh Umagen, Volume 4, Teshuvah 18. This came at a time when the evening Amida was a voluntary prayer that could be replaced. Nahaguham is a book of Moroccan customs that says, he notes that the custom to recite these prayers remained even after Arvit was established as mandatory. In modern times, however, 
reciting the collection of verses beginning with Tehillim 89 has become rare in practice, while saying Yiru has remained in many places a common Moroccan custom. Let's say very simply, people used to work in the field. Now it's time to go home. The last thing you do before it gets dark to go home, you start praying Alvit. People were afraid to walk from the fields to their homes after it got dark. So the Gaonim instituted some type of blessing that they could say very quick. And then they would go home and presumably either not say an Amidah at all, this was instead of the Amidah, or say the Amidah at home, perhaps without a Minyan, without the synagogue, without everything else. Now, when this no longer became an issue, because none of us live in a situation where it's the Batakhtes the, is outside of the city walls, and we're not able to come home, uh, we're afraid to come home, maybe some places we're still afraid to come home. Uh, that's, that's uh, for those of us living outside of Israel, that still might be a thing. Even though this minhag, uh, the, this decree is no longer relevant, the minhag has stayed in its original, original place. The tool, if you look in the writings of the tool, the tool says that exact phrase. That now that you can recite the Amidah with no issue, there's no reason to say these Pesukim. Look in the Shulchan Aruch in chapter 236. My copy of the Budraham was lost somewhere in Korea. I shipped it from Israel on my way home when I moved back to the United States. And I should say, when I left home, on my way back to the United States, uh, my books, many, many of my books, about three or four boxes of my books got lost in the middle of the ocean somewhere, and I never got any of them. I got a few new boxes of books in Korean, but nothing, <laughs> nothing in Hebrew. Uh, so my, my copy of the Rada is somewhere over there. Bezalat Hashem, when I have a chance, I'll acquire a new one. And so that's the reason why Sefaradim don't recite these 18 blessings, uh, these Pesukim, because it's no longer important. Ashkenazim continue to do it because that's what the tradition is. Have you have clock for, for a couple more? You have strength? Yeah? Okay. Sefaradim. This is Ted Zayn. The tokea. The tokea is the one who blows the shofar. Is there a word for the shofar blower? Tokea. I won't call him a tokea. The tokea. He asks permission from the community before he blows the shofar. Ashkenazim but Ashkenazim don't have this custom. How does the tokeh ask permission? What does he say? Birshut. Yeah, With your permission, and shamayim, they say respond, and then he recites the blessing on the shofar. I don't know why Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin singles out shofar blowing because. To the best of my knowledge, Sefaradim do this all over the place. They do this by Sivirat Omer, they do this by all kinds of places where Sefaradim say, before Halel, the blessing before Halel, all kinds of places. Why he singles out here, I don't know. Uh, more could it be that in, in uh, London, the Chazan only says this by the Shofar and not by other things? No, I'm tired. Okay, where he, he where, yeah, where he is though. Or maybe he was in Manchester too, so yeah, no. You can ask. Maybe though, I don't know. That's why my only my only theory is maybe the Savadim of the Spanish Portuguese did not recite Bishud Mu'ay on anything aside from the Shofar. My theory, but I could be wrong. Tam uh, Look at the footnote fifty nine. 
משום שהתוקע אינו השליח ציבור. Because the shofar blower is not the chazan. מבקש רשות מהקהל להוציאה מידי חובה בתקיעותיו. Because he's not the designated emissary or the shaliach of the community, he asks his own permission to blow the shofar on behalf of the community. ותמלו מנהג אשכנז מסתבר נבחר התוקע ברצון הקהל. The Ashkenazim, the reason for their custom is they assume that the, if the person is going up there to blow the shofar, it's because the community has already agreed that this person should go and blow the shofar for them. And it's not similar to the zimun that the Ashkenazim also say, because that's already a different situation. But that's not, whether or not the blower of the shofar has to ask permission for the community is dependent on the Savaradim saying, because he's not the Chazan, he has to ask permission. The Ashkenazim saying, presumably he was chosen by the community, and because of that, he does not have to ask permission. Let me ask you a question. For those who say, Birshut Morai Varabotai, on Sefirat Omer, every night of the Omer, the Chazan goes up and says, Birshut Morai Varabotai, Shamaim, or the Rabbi, Birshut Morabotai, Shamaim. Why would the Chazan need to say the blessing for people who... Everyone's counting the Sivat Omer. So why is the Chazan saying Bishud Mu'ayi Rabotai? What purpose is there in him saying a blessing for you? Everyone repeats the blessing anyways after the Chazan. He says the blessing, he counts, and then we say the blessing and counts. Very good, Sarah, that's right. It's, it's most likely for the people who miss a night, and because of that, miss a night and a day, and because of that, they can't count anymore with the blessing. So the Chazan has in mind, there are some people here who will not be repeating the blessing, I'm saying the blessing for them. Yes, I accept that to be the case. That's probably why. So then tell me why, why on the first night does the Chazan say, From day two and onwards, I know. But day one, I don't know. I'm telling you, I don't know why on day one the Shaliyah Tzibur is saying, We do it, I just don't know why. Yud Zayn. Yud Zayn. I don't think this applies at all anymore. I've never seen this in the world today. Maybe if those of you are familiar with Chabad Tefillin, maybe it counts. But he writes, Sefaradim ha-tefillin The size of the tefillin are the size of a finger and a half. Ashkenazim ke-shalosh etzbaot. And Ashkenazim, they have bigger tefillin, three fingers in size. Let's just say that he's saying Sephardim have small tefillin, Ashkenazim have big tefillin. From what I've seen, and I have many pairs of tefillin that people unfortunately have passed away and they don't have any descendants who will put on tefillin, Ashkenazi tefillin, Sephardi tefillin, all of them are tiny little tefillin. Have you seen these tiny tefillin? That used to be the way people made tefillin. Today, most likely, if you find tiny tefillin and they cost you a uh, hundred pounds, uh, then probably they're fake tefillin, right? Don't trust them. Yeah, but but uh, there are still small tefillin. Haraperes, for example, wears tiny tefillin that were written for him by a sofer from the Zilberman Yeshiva, uh, the students of the Gona Vilna in the old city of Jerusalem. But they're tiny, but they're they're written. It's very hard to write small and accurately. So you have to have a very good sofer who knows how to write things small and accurately. Why would Sephardim and Ashkenazim have different sized tefillin? I didn't want to bring you a copy of it, but in the other volume of Keter Shem Tov, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin suggests that wearing tefillin is something that is done, was done the whole day. 
And Talmidei Chachamim, this was kind of their sign of prominence. The Geonim, the heads of the yeshivot, the Avod Beidin, they wore Tefidin. Everyone saw this is a Chacham, he wears big Tefidin. The students, the people who are not such big Chachamim yet, they wore Tefidin also, but they kept them. They were hidden, they were small under their hat or under their, their turban or under their scarf or whatever, they under their talit, whatever they were covering their head with. And because of this, different people had different sizes of tefillin, and for whatever reason in Ashkenaz, it became a thing to prominently display one's tefillin. I'm pretty sure that in the whole Jewish world today, that's the way everyone does it, but Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin records this as a difference between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. I'm going to start number 18, but I'm not going to finish it. I just want to start it. I'll leave you off with a question, so that next week you'll know what we're talking about. Sephardim. The shape of the letters in the Torah scroll They are not the same shape as the letters of the Ashkenazi writing in the Sefer Torah. So Sefaradim and Ashkenazim have two different fonts in how they write their Sefer Torah. Anyone know the colloquial terms for these? What they call them? You go to Sofer, you want Sephardic writing. What do you call it? Velish, very good, man. Velish, that's right. I don't know what. It's an old word. Velish is the Ktav Sevardim. Now, you want Ashkenazi writing, what do they call it? What's Ashkenazi writing called? Bet Yosef, presumably following the Shulchan Aruch. And if you want Chabad writing, what is it called? <laughs> they call it the Ari, the writing of the Arizal. Yeah, so you have Chabad, maybe some other Chazi found the Arizal. Ashkenazim are doing what's supposed to be the Sephardic writing of the Shulchan Aruch, presumably. And the Sephardim are following an earlier writing that they claim was before the Shulchan Aruch, perhaps, and that is called Velish. I didn't plan to give a course on Safut right now. But, but I want to tell you what predicament this led Rabbi Shabtov Gagin uh, to define uh, himself in. Let me read to you from the other PDF, and we're going to end today. In just a few minutes, I want to read to you the problem. Next week, we're going to deal with the solution. Okay, so here, here's the, the problem. Open up the other PDF of Ketel Shem Tov. So it should say in the bottom of your Zoom invitation or your uh, Google Classroom, it should say uh, Ketel Shem Tov Volume 1. Maybe page 349 or something like that. Okay, and open it up to the... I kept a few pages here, just as dedications to to his parents, and dedications to Sir Moses and Judith Montefiore. But here, where it says at the top of the page, Shin Chafavav, so it should be page four in your PDF. Yes? Okay. Tzadihei, the first paragraph, he says, Mizeh Shalosh Anim. It is three years. It's been three years. Nasati Amsterdam. I traveled to Amsterdam. I went to go copy the minhagim of my brothers, the Sephardim. Now, I don't know the history behind this. It could be that before Rabbi Shantov Gagin was accepted as a rabbi of the Sephardim in the United Kingdom, that he had to go get some kind of training by the Sephardim of Amsterdam to know the minhagim. It could be. Or it could be like he did much of his life, he traveled to different Jewish communities to pick up minhagim from them. I don't know what, which one was which. When I came to the Sephardic synagogue in Amsterdam, I saw that 
that they refused to give aliyot to Ashkenazi Jews in their synagogue. For those of you who scream racism by Ashkenazim to Sephardim, it would be very wise before we scream racism to own up to the fact that unfortunately much of our history has racism that goes in the other direction as well. And this is an ugly problem. It's ugly from every direction that it comes from. But we can't, we can't uh, ignore it. We have to deal with it. And this thing where they wouldn't uh, give aliyot to Ashkenazim, it made my atzabi, my, my, made me very angry. Yes? When I asked the parnas of the community, why don't you give Ashkenazim aliyot? Why do you refuse them aliyot? He answered, that it's not us, the Ashkenazim also have this custom. They don't give aliyot to a Sephardic person. If a Sephardic person comes to Ashkenazi synagogue, they don't give him an aliyah either. He says, and this is the custom of both the Sephardic... You can imagine what today people will call customs. Meaning this, this not giving aliyot to each other has been considered already a custom. So this is the custom of the Sephardim not to give aliyot to the Ashkenazim. And it's a custom of the Ashkenazim not to give aliyot to the Sephardim since the two communities arrived in Holland. So there's also a custom of the Sephardim there in Amsterdam. That if an Ashkenazi guest comes to pray in the Sephardic synagogue, on the top of the next page, they don't allow him to take a seat in the central part of the synagogue. So there's the main area of the synagogue. No Ashkenazim are allowed to sit there. The Ashkenazim are only allowed to sit in the perimeter of the room, on the outside of the room. And there is literally a, a barrier of sorts in the entrance of the synagogue. And the decisions or the keys are in the hands of the shamash. And the shamash stands at the entrance of the synagogue and he does a selection. Sephardim here, Ashkenazim there. Sephardim here, Ashkenazim there. Everybody who comes in, he separates you based on your ethnicity. You know, I would love to say, this stuff is so crazy that it can't be true. But here you're having Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, and I'm not sure if this is when he was a rabbi in London or in Manchester, I don't know when in his life this happened, so I don't have a year here in front of me. But he went to Amsterdam to go study the minhagim of the Sephardic community there, and he finds that one of the ancient minhagim of this community is to have a division between Sephardim and Ashkenazim, but institutionalized division, not just, you know, we don't eat your food. Here it's, you cannot get an aliyah to our Seva Torah. You cannot sit in the main part of the sanctuary. And he says, and when the Gabai is asked, the Panas, it's not just us. Don't blame the Sephardim. If you, Rabbi Gagin, were to go to the Ashkenazi synagogue, they wouldn't give you an aliyah either. Somehow that justifies why neither of us are willing to give the other ones aliyot. And says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, It made me very angry this day. How could it be that Jews act this way to each other? Normally you're not allowed to leave off a shi'ul with a question, an existential question, for example, about a Kadosh Baruch You don't want people to have a crisis of faith. But it's okay right now, in the three weeks, the crisis of faith is not about a Kadosh Baruch 
it's okay that in these three weeks where we mourn the destruction of the Ben Amikdash because of hatred between Jewish people, it's okay for you to suffer for another week until next Tuesday, that it should hurt you in your bones that Sephardim and Ashkenazim treat themselves like two completely different nations, and because of that, they don't even give aliyot, they don't let each other sit in the right place, and the other one's in Batekneset, then if it bothers you, well, wonderful. The whole purpose of this introduction of Rabbi Shantov Gagin, the whole purpose of this series of Shiri that I'm giving is to drive home the point, you can't talk about unity until you truly feel the pain, the suffering, of what it looks like when the Jewish people so pathetically fight with each other to the point where they won't even go to each other's Sifre Torah, where they won't, where they won't uh, be allowed to sit in the right part of the other one's sanctuary. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin has a mouthful to say about this custom, and he did what he could to abolish this custom, and he fought with some pretty serious people about getting rid of these things, but he had a halachic hurdle to overcome. Because it seems to be that there were those who wanted to justify that halachically, Sephardic Sifrei Torah are not kosher for Ashkenazi Jews. And Ashkenazi Sifrei Torah are not kasher for Sephardic Jews. And they were using halacha to justify this division between both communities. That's what the next three pages of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's writing is dedicated to. How do you overcome when people use halacha in order to separate the Jewish people? Bezat Hashem, that is our shiur for next week. For right now, I'm going to wish you all a lot of I'm sticking around for anybody who has any questions, but if anyone needs to go, thank you so much for learning with me today.